Welcome to episode 39 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are talking about killing your darlings. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, kill your darlings or murder your darlings is a very sage piece of writing advice that has been attributed to just about everyone. Faulkner, Ginsburg, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, Stephen King, I think, said it in his book. Um, It's been attributed to just about everybody, so I think it's just one of those pieces of wisdom that has been passed down Mm -hmm. for a long time, and I'm not necessarily sure who originated that saying, although if any of our listeners know, definitely uh, tweet at us and let us know who started that phrase. But basically, the meaning behind kill your darlings or murder your darlings, in terms of writing, because don't go out and kill any real people, (laughs) dear to you or otherwise, um, when we talk about that as a writing tool or tip, um, we're talking about those sections of writing that you love dearly with all your heart. And it could be a scene, it could be a character, it could be a subplot. Um, You know, it could be either very small or very large in scope, but it's those things that you are in love with and infatuated with about your own writing that really are not serving the story that you're there to tell. And you need to be ruthless and you need to excise them from your manuscript. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, so Kelly and I had discussed that we would probably be doing a series on basically troubleshooting craft. Um, I do apologize that there's like thundering and probably the sound of my AC running in the background, but it is like 110 degrees outside. So apologies for the background noise and like literally 100% humidity. But so we're going to do this series on basically we're also going to operate under the notion that y'all have written a draft, that you have finished a book. Mm-hmm. And so this one, the murder your darlings or kill your darlings is really about streamlining and removing excess anything. And I think there are three levels of killing your darlings. There is the overall plot level which could can include a storyline that has to get ejected, a character that has to go, um, you know, so like on a bigger macro level, there's that level of killing your darling. Then there is the sort of slightly smaller level, which is basically getting rid of scenes that don't serve, mm. you know, like even though you really love this interaction between your characters or whatever, but if it just stalls the story and it doesn't actually move the story forward, then that has to go. And then on a sentence level, there's a lot of people, in particular beginning writers, who really do like their words. And I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm definitely one of them. I'm very, very wordy. But I'm also not, I'm also pretty ruthless about cutting my words if necessary. But mm-hmm. 
you know, I understand that if you are somebody who are, is wordy like me, or if you like words and you like that, then a lot of people have this, you know, resistance to getting rid of, rid of pieces of pretty prose that they thought was really mm-hmm. beautiful or like a description of something that they thought was really beautiful. My favorite example of this is actually from one of the Anne of Green Gables books. Um, I think it's Anne of Avonlea, um, or no, maybe it might, might be Anne of the Island. Um, for those of you guys who have not read these books by L.M. Montgomery, they're about, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure plenty of people haven't, but these were such a staple of my childhood that it's like really hard for me to imagine people having not read them. But Anne is an orphan, a uh, redheaded orphan that gets adopted by this childless couple, a brother and sister. Um, but at, and it kind of takes her from the moment she gets adopted, basically through adulthood. And in her college years, she has writing ambitions, you know, so she starts writing stories. I mean, like when she was a teenager, she wrote stories. She founded something called a story club, um, with her friends and they wrote stories and they shared them with each other. And they're all hilariously like Anne's are extremely hilariously over the top and melodramatic, but Anne maintained her writing ambitions even as she aged. And in college, she wrote a short story um, called Avril's Atonement. Uh (laughs) And it's, you know, and Anne has this romantic, you know, it's basically supposedly a, a love story between Avril and this dude and then some other dude who's like, basically it's a, it's a melodrama and everyone keeps telling her, you know, the villain is actually the more interesting character. You should redeem him by the end. And Anne's like, no, Avril has to atone and be with the man that, the virtuous man. And so she's standing the story out and it keeps getting rejected. And, you know, everyone's trying to, to soothe her feelings about it, but she has one friend who's like a neighbor of hers, Mr. Harrison, who very bluntly tells her, you've got too many, you know, flowery fa- phrases in this. It's too, you know, and so Anne very slowly, ruthlessly pairs things down, um, you know, and she's like, but I can't bear to let go of the sunset, this description of the sunset. I can't do it. And it's just <laughs> this hilarious interlude. And it, that always makes me think of the kill your darlings part where, you know, you just can't mm-hmm. bear to let go of something that you've written because for some reason you just love it, you know, mm-hmm. but for the good of a story, you have to let it go. <laughs> it's true. I, I have to be honest. I thought that your example was going to be my smoking scenes. <laughs> so I don't do it anymore, but, um, for uh, several years I did smoke. I was a smoker and I loved to write about smoking. I don't know why, but I loved to write about smoking. And no matter what I wrote, if it was a short story, if I was working on a novel, if it was anything at all, there was always, always a scene in which a character is smoking a cigarette and that's the only thing that's happening. And there's an extended description of the act of smoking in everything I wrote for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it never had a purpose and it was never, you know, but I just loved it and it was very wordy and it was very descriptive and it was like, I could not let go of those scenes. They were like my calling card and everything I did for years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I have probably killed darlings on absolutely every single level. The hardest one 
or the biggest change was that middle grade. I, I think I discussed on this podcast before I basically got rid of an entire character and his storyline. Mm-hmm. Cause it's and a major, character, a major character, not like yeah. a minor one. <laughs> um, because it just ultimately after the drafts I'd written and after talking with Kelly and just like uh, not understanding why it wasn't working basically was just like, you know what, as much as I love this character and I did, I love this character. Ultimately he wasn't serving the story. It was like he was in an entirely different book. So because of that, I had to let him go. I had to cut him out. I literally had to kill him on the page, like in my heart, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I can make room for the actual story on the page. Um, in my in Winter Song, I cut out a subplot in the beginning of my book that my editor had requested me to take out because that story never went anywhere. That subplot did not go anywhere. I initially included that subplot to add a complication in the relationship between the sisters, but my editor thought it was unnecessary and she was right. So I basically just went and removed it, rearranged scenes in my book and, you know, tried, you know, shuffle things around to make things much more tighter. Things move much more quickly in the beginning. I have also cut pages upon pages and thousands of words, hundreds of thousands of words of description. I like to describe things, but weirdly, I don't like to read description (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I know a lot of people have, and and I always think of Anne again from Anne of the Island that she's like, this description of the sunset, I can't let it go. You know, I, you know, it was so beautiful, but to be completely honest, at least for me, I don't linger on beautiful descriptions of things. Mm -hmm. I kind of tend to skip over them. And if I do linger on something beautiful in terms of writing, it's generally to do with emotion, not physical description. Um, I'm not saying the physical description does not have its place because it does, but I think you really only need enough description to kind of set the scene for the the character, set the scene for the reader, and then you can move on. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's let's talk about then how to go about and murder your darlings mm-hmm. and let's start let's start kind of big and move smaller so let's start with the biggest ones which is removing a character or removing a plot mm-hmm. how would you identify if something on that large needs to go mm-hmm Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, as you said, you've done this before with a work in progress where you removed an entire character and the work in progress that I'm working on right now, I just removed essentially what used to be my premise (laughs) is now gone, (laughs) (laughs) which that's a pretty big thing to let go of. Um, But I was clinging to this one like story idea. It was the idea around which I'd created my story and my characters and everything else. It was the first piece that I had for the book. And it meant a lot to me, and I was emotionally invested in it. And I struggled with it for a long, long time. I mean, I've been, I've had this story idea in my head for several years now. And 
I could never figure out how to make this piece of the puzzle work. I liked this puzzle piece. I liked the way it looked. I knew I wanted to use it, but it just didn't fit with anything else. And I kept either trying to force it to fit or I kept putting it to the side and saying, well, I'll just leave it here and I'll come back and come to it later. And I think for me, what helped me identify the fact that it had to go and I had to kill it was that I was doing so much work to try to make this piece of the story successful or harmonious with the rest of the story that I wanted to tell. And I was bending over backwards to try to make it happen. And even then it wasn't happening. No matter how hard I worked, it stuck out. It was different. It was taking too much attention and focus and time and didn't gel with the rest of the story. And if you are working that hard to try to get something to fit properly, then that might be a sign that you need to cut it. Likewise, if there is something in your story that you keep forgetting about, like <laughs> if you have to like force yourself to write about this one character or this one thing because it doesn't interest you and you're bored and you can't like if if you don't want to if you're dragging your feet working on one aspect of your book, then that's another type of sign that might indicate to you that this doesn't really belong with the rest of your story. So if you're either working too hard to force it in or you're not working hard enough to include it, those I think are two of the more common common telltale signs that you might have a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely if you forget to include an element or a character, then you would have to conceive of a way to tell your story without that element or that character. And that was essentially what happened to me when I had to cut this character out. It just, ultimately, I kept coming back to the two characters that remained in my story and their relationship with each other and their friendship. And I, and the way that third character fit into this dynamic was just awkward and weird and strange. And while I still think this character has a really fascinating story, that may be told later or into something else. It just didn't work in the story as it was the current incarnation. Cause, and I remember thinking about this and talking about this with Kelly and I would have to like engineer mm-hmm. the most <laughs> just, I had to like sit down, like literally engineer scenes. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get him in this right. room with them Scenarios so that they can all talk? And, and, and it just yeah. was not organic and it didn't just wasn't clicking. Um, and you know, to be completely honest, this realization took years, by the way, years, Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> years for me to get to that point, maybe because this middle grade I mentioned before was kind of my first real attempt at a novel anyway, aside from the, you know, the self-reflective, thinly veiled autobiography that I wrote in, <laughs> in college that we all wrote at one point. In yeah. Time. It's either that or epic fan fiction, or in my case, both. Mm-hmm. Cause I did those. Um, but you know, that was kind of my first attempt to write something original, real, and something that I would have wanted to read. And, you know, I was young. I didn't know my craft yet. And I was, you know, I had these ideas and in images and characters that I wanted to talk about, but didn't know how to put them together and didn't know how to prioritize. And I think that's the, the real thing you need to 
to learn, and this just comes with time, I think, is learning how to prioritize what gets told in your story, the elements of your story that get more focus and attention. This comes down to artistry and talent, I think, a little bit more than actual craft and labor. Because storytelling in itself is a very nebulous or numinous thing where you just can't really teach someone how to tell a story. Somebody has a gift for it. Um, Really great speakers have a gift for it. Um, You know, just that, that natural rhythm and, you know, coming up with how to tell something, where to pull back, where to emphasize that comes with both practice, but also just kind of an innate preference, not preference, innate uh, affinity for it, I guess. So that's the whole storytelling aspect of it. And I think anybody who wants to write has that aspect of storytelling in them. And the time aspect is just having written enough to start to identify what's important, what's not important, what's less important. And so some of that aspect is definitely time. But learning what to prioritize in a big overall story is pretty important. And I think, what would you prioritize first in a story after you've, after let's, you know, you've written a whole thing and so you're now looking to revise it. What are you going to prioritize, Kelly? If I have written a novel and I'm revising, I think... I have two initial priorities for the first revision because most likely books are going to go several through a couple of revisions. Several, yes. So my two main focuses I think would be the emotional through line of the story, what's the character arc, what are the emotional beats, are those organic and, you know, is there a, a clear arc? Does the character grow or change? Um, so the emotional through line of the story and then the plot through line of the story. Mm-hmm. I think those two things on our, my initial revision would probably be the two things that I would focus on because I think those are the things that pull readers through the story. And other things I think are important and come into play when you're revising, but I think if you don't have a solid plot and a solid emotional through line, then I think you're going to lose readers on your, you know, as, as your book goes along. So I would agree. And for me, the first priority would be emotional through line because Mm -hmm. I think plot is informed by, or at least for me, it should be informed by emotional through line. If you have a clear idea of the trajectory emotional trajectory of the book. It doesn't necessarily have to be a singular character, but there's generally an emotional trajectory. You know, all these characters come to a realization or, you know, learn something or grow or, you know, whatever. So what, so you have to kind of, at least when I revise, I like basically just throw everything on a, and into a, into a draft. And then afterwards I have to like sit down and reverse engineer everything. But identifying the emotional through line and then looking at the actual events of your book, like 
the literal what happens. Now, the literal what happens would be your plot. And the places where the emotional through line and the literal plot happenings don't really have any relation to each other is where you need to fix it and where you, you know, and mm-hmm. you have, and it takes, you know, it does take some practice to identify what that is because sometimes you just have a character who literally just shows up to convey information and then kind of shows up later to convey more information and doesn't actually contribute anything meaningful to the growth of the, of your cast. So maybe you should combine that character, the bearer of that information with somebody the reader would already be intimate with or familiar with, you know, so these are the kind of bigger decisions. So you've literally murdered that character in your heart and, but also given them new life by combining with somebody else, you know, things like things of that nature. But that's to me, because there is no one size fit all solution to this, the whole kill your darlings, murder your darlings, or just any sort of revision thing. But I think prioritizing emotional then plot storylines, through lines, and seeing where they line up, where they don't line up, you know, where one gets precedence over the other, and, and to see if that's kind of even and balanced and has a, a trajectory, things that build up to a big emotional climax and then kind of resolve after that that's kind of the first stage in, of of troubleshooting kind of pacing issues because that's, you know, as we said before this whole process is really streamlining your book getting rid of excess weight, getting rid of baggage so that's kind of the big macro picture so then let's kind of move a little bit smaller <laughs> and go on a scene level. And ultimately, I think this is, if you've done the work already of identifying the big things, then what follows should be fairly easy. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, when I'm revising a book, I, I tend to look at every scene that I've written. Of course, now I write in Scrivener. Scrivener has this function where you can basically, like, each scene gets a, a note card, like a visual note card. And I look at each scene, and if each scene doesn't move the story forward in some way, either the plot or the emotion, then it's an extraneous scene and has to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to think about it like this, because when you are reading a book or watching a movie or watching television show, whatever. This is a finite story. We are not seeing every moment of every character's life. We're seeing specific things that contribute to a story. So we're not seeing, you know, when the character gets a glass of water or eats lunch or, you know, brushes their hair all the time, unless there's something about that scene that is contributing to the story overall. And so every scene that you write needs to have some tie-in to that emotional through line or to that plot. It can be a minor one, but it needs to connect somehow. And if your scene doesn't feed into that, then it's extraneous and we don't need it. And it's not even so much a question of being like, oh, well, we don't need it. It's just extra. It it actually hurts your story, I think, to have 
those types of things in there because they weigh you down. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, too, the reader might be trying to do all this extra work to find out how this scene is relevant and how it connects in. And then if it never comes back around and doesn't turn out to mean anything, that can be really frustrating. And, you know, I I get (laughs) really impatient um, as I'm experiencing now when I'm watching Avatar The Last Airbender. I get really impatient when we have these, like, quote-unquote filler episodes where nothing is happening. I want to get back to the story or I want the characters to have meaningful development development if we're not going to have some kind of plot development. And whenever I don't get that, I feel like it's a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing about, I think, interstitial scenes. So basically what I call these kind of connecting scenes, because most like most books have kind of like big scenes, like either a big event happens or a big emotional thing happens and then kind of everything in the middle that connects it is just kind of the sinew and the ligaments that connect the story together. And this is actually a piece of advice that's usually given in the process of drafting. But, you know, people always say, make a list of the scenes you're most excited to get to and you were most excited to write. Um, and if, if what you're writing at the moment is boring you, then just skip ahead to the scene you do want to write. This works for some people and this doesn't work for others. Obviously, like every part of this process, it's not a one size fit all solution. But I think there is something to that. If the scene you are writing is boring you, then it's probably going to bore your reader too. And so, you know, that's kind of the other thing. So you break your book down into scenes and if each scene doesn't move the story forward, Um, or if it only does one thing, because ideally scenes will move both the plot and some aspect of the emotion forward. And if it only moves the actual physical plot forward, then maybe find a way to somehow combine that with an emotion scene only. Like, you know, if you have a conversation, if you have a scene where it's just two people having a conversation, but it, you know, moves their relationship forward And then you have another scene where it's literally just procedural stuff. Like, they have to do this, they have to grab that, they have to find this. Maybe find some way to combine that so that the actions that are happening in this plot scene are also furthering the relationships between these characters. I think that is actually probably the best way to keep tension moving forward. Um, You know, books that... flag tension I think is just like either there's a scene where they're just talking and the emotional stuff happens and then there's a scene where action happens. Now because I'm a person who likes to read for character I often glaze over during pure plot scenes. Mm -hmm. Like if it's just action and it's like a description of somebody fighting or something then I just kind of thumb through very quickly and I'm just like okay 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 because if I don't see that there's an emotional development in this fight scene then I'm not going to particularly care but if it fits a physical fight scene but also an emotional fight like they're arguing about something that it's this real you know crisis and it's coming out in this like physical fight that's also moving the plot forward that to me is going to be much more tense and keep me much more invested than those scenes separately Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else to contribute kind of like on the scene level? 
No, I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty good. I mean, I think people who have, who write long running series, their fans love the interstitial stuff, you know, like one of the things about Harry Potter as the series went on, like, especially the latter half is full of bloat. I mean, just a lot of unnecessary stuff that does not move the plot forward or does not, you know, advance the emotional story of of Harry. But I kind of like them <laughs> because I'm already pre-invested in this from, you know, from mm-hmm. book one. So all the extra basically fan service stuff, even though it doesn't make for a very tight book, delights me, you know. I, I, but yeah. she earned that. Yes. She couldn't have done that in book one. True. That was, you know, <laughs> book six, five, six, seven, where she'd already hooked you. So, you know, that's a that's that's a luxury for the established writer, <laughs> as so many luxuries in this business are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, there are definitely books like that that I just love that I know, actually, from an editorial standpoint, that the scene is probably not necessary, but I don't care because I'm already invested. And the author has mm-hmm. earned that from, you know, earned that in their books. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it on the scene level. So then let's get really ruthless and kind of go on the on the word level. Yeah. Do you think... I have a question. Do you think that purple prose, because that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about, not exclusively, but purple prose definitely falls into this category. Mm -hmm. Do you think that purple prose is something that is more prevalent among young writers, either young in years or young in their writing career, even if they are older? Um, as people, do you think it's a beginning a beginning writer thing, or do you think that it is not that simple? I think it's a beginning writer thing. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I think because when we're young and we're fed this idea that good writing exists on a sentence level first, you know that that's kind of what we're mm-hmm. taught or not, if not directly taught this way, then sort of subconsciously we absorb this idea that good writing is pretty. And I think the, the more you write and the more you read, the more, I think the more experienced writer comes to the conclusion that beautiful language is beautiful, but it's only good if it serves a point and I, I mean, I will say this, I was an extremely, and still am probably, an extremely purple writer. I love pretty mm-hmm. words, you know. I, it's not, for me, it's not necessarily imagery, but I love sounds. I love rhythm. Mm-hmm. I love alliteration, that kind of a thing. And I get really purple about that. And I get it, and I, and I recognize that about myself. Because when I look at the stuff I wrote when I was extremely young... It's so embarrassing. (laughs) It's so mortifying. Um, Because it was me basically showing off. You know, look at what I can do. Look at what I can write. You know, Uh, I mean, not. I have an excellent vocabulary. Exactly. So, this is going to be a slight tangent, but in high school, I was part of a creative writing conservatory. 
Um, which meant like every weekend and generally it was just kind of like a couple of hours for us to do some free writing with prompts and, and things like that. And sometimes we'd share our writing, sometimes we wouldn't. There was a girl in my creative writing conservatory who probably would have scored, you know, 800, well, 800, 1600 was the max SAT score when mm-hmm. we were in high school because we're old. Um, but, uh-huh. you know, she had this incredible vocabulary and would just use words that, and I have a pretty extensive vocabulary myself that I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it was like she had like eaten a diction, like a thesaurus and then spit it out and it like come out with the most obscure word possible to mean basically something like she could have said much more mm-hmm. simply and elegantly. Um, it wasn't necessarily purple, but I think that's the sentiment behind purple writing. It's showing off. And not everybody starts out this way, though. Not everybody has it in them or has the desire to write purple. You know, some some people just want to read a good story and it, they don't really care what the trappings are around it. So so that's kind of a slightly different issue when you have, like, simplistic writing. That's a little bit different than purple. But both, I think, are beginner, not problems, beginner mistakes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Tendencies. Yeah, tendencies. So what would you describe as purple, purple prose? Oh, um... I mean, of course, you know, we call it purple prose and you, I tend to think right off the bat of these really extended floral descriptions of things, not just physical descriptions, but also descriptions of emotions, descriptions of love or of sadness Mm -hmm. or of, you know, some kind of feeling that, um, you are almost over-describing in an attempt to convey a depth. But I also feel when I used to do this, because again, I wrote this way for many years and probably still do at times. um, I think when I was doing it, what I was trying to convey was a depth of feeling, but also a specificity. And this is the thing that I think is uh, problematic, not problematic, but that is... um, that trips me up because I was always trying to get really specific and I would go on and on and on with these floral, abstract, lovely, wonderful, luscious descriptions of things in order to convey a specific feeling. And yet when people pull back and read it, specificity is the last thing that you would think of. Mm -hmm. It just becomes a run on of words that at a certain point, sometimes when I'm reading a book that has a lot of purple prose, I, it, it loses all meaning. There's no clarity there anymore. And I actually cannot parse what they are trying to say because it becomes so descriptive and so abstract. And I notice that it tends to run on a little bit. Like people like to, you know, do either run on sentences or repeated, you know, motifs or something like that. And it, I think the the true problem with it is that it robs it of clarity Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically if you are, at least for me, if I'm reading a sentence and it sounds pretty, but if I really think Mm -hmm. about it and I have to ask, what does this mean? Like, what does this mean? Um, so the example I'm going to pull up is actually something Kelly introduced to me 
and this is actually a drinking game, I believe. It's the Eye of Argon. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kelly, maybe you want to describe this, because she actually did introduce it to me, I think, in one of our critique groups, or maybe one of our conversations afterwards. years ago, years ago. Yeah, the Eye of Argon. And I could not even tell you where I who originally introduced this to me, but essentially the Eye of Argon is a heroic fantasy novella that was written in the 70s, and I just pulled it up. It was written by Jim Theus, um, and he published it, I think, um, in a science fiction magazine um, back in the 70s, and it became infamous for being so horrifically bad. And it evolved eventually, you know, there's all this folklore about how it happened and who started it, you know, but essentially the Eye of Argon game is that you get a group of people together. And honestly, the larger the group, the better. And you get, um, you know, the text of the Eye of Argon, which I think you can find pretty easily online yeah, at this point. I pulled it Although up. at one point, yeah, at one point it was, you know, really scarce. It was printed in this magazine and people had like photocopied it and were sharing <laughs> it around, you know. Um, but now I think it's readily available. You get a large group of people together. You have the text of the Eye of Argon. And you pass it around, and your job is to read aloud for as long as you can without laughing. And as soon as you laugh, you're out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, you know, and you can play variations and have different drinking rules and who drinks when and whatever, but it is hilarious and amazing. And I, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm going to try and read the first paragraph aloud to you, and we'll see how how far I can make it without laughing because it might be it might be pretty rough. But this is kind of an example of what I think is a beginner mistake mm-hmm. of overly describing things, trying to make it sound good, but then ultimately having it not make any sense whatsoever. Um, okay, so. The weather-beaten trail wound ahead into the dust-wracked climbs of the barren land which dominates large portions of the Norgolian Empire. Age-worn hoofprints smothered by the sifting sands of time shone dully against the dust-splattered crust of earth. The tireless sun cast its parching rays of incandescence from overhead halfway through its daily revolution. Small rodents scampered about, occupying themselves in the daily accomplishments of their dismal lives. Dust sprayed over three heaving mounts in blinding clouds while they bore the burdensome cargoes of their struggling overseers. Prepare to embrace your creators in the Stygian haunts of hell, barbarian, gasped the first soldier. I can't believe you didn't lose it at the dismal lives of the rats, to be perfectly I'm sorry, honest. Sorry, it was really hard for the parching rays of incandescence. <laughs> yeah. There's I mean, and this is not even this is not even the thing. I mean, I think if you tried you could probably get through like the first page and then it would it would be bad. There's one point Yeah, oh yeah, I'm just reading ahead to chapter two. This is 
this is pretty great stuff. Anyway, look up the Eye of Argon. It's a really fabulous. Maybe someday JJ and I will do a podcast wherein we would just read as much of it as we possibly can <laughs> and see what, uh, yeah, yeah, some of this is. Oof. But I think that is actually probably the best example that I can think of, of really mm-hmm. oh, just trying too hard. Basically, I think that's what Purple Prose, to me, comes down to. It just, it's trying too hard. Um, and there is, I think there is an elegance in simplicity. Not simplistic, not simplistic writing, but mm-hmm. simplicity. I think last year we talked about Ernest Hemingway, who is probably the polar opposite of me when it comes to writing style. But... He's so specific with emotions without actually getting florid or purple or anything. Um, or, and the one example I always think of um, is, is actually John Green. John Green has a pretty distinct voice in his novels. Uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily purple, but it is very sort of distinct and self-conscious and self-aware. But he always has like one or two lines from every single book that just stand out in their specificity. Um, the one everyone quotes from The Fault in Our Stars is, I think, as he read... Uh, yeah, as he read, I fell in love with him the way you fall asleep, slowly and then all at once. Mm-hmm. And that is just one line, but it's very, very specific. It's not flowery or purple about the depths and the colors and the this and the scent and the way he smells or whatever. It's just a very simple description, but it's very, very elegant and beautiful, I think. Um, there's also a line, I think, in Looking for Alaska where he, he, he's contrasting, the main character's contrasting himself with Alaska and describes her as a hurricane, um, which I don't have memorized off the top of my head, but that is also one of the lines that people remember from his books. Um, so that, you know, that's a good example of somebody who is able to use language in a very specific way and actually deploy that sparingly. Because if your entire book is written like this, mm-hmm. it's unreadable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, absolutely and completely unreadable. And in fact, all the things that, at least the things that I read for, get lost. I read for character, and I read for interaction. And when you're just constantly telling me, and that's what it is. Purple Prose is telling you how you should feel about something. So that's that's her feelings about purple prose, obviously. How would you be? How would you say you can identify it in your own writing? How can you identify it in your own writing? I think that's probably going to be the hardest one for an individual person to identify. Yeah. Because I think you know, with the with the characters or the scenes or the plot lines or the big stuff, it it is more readily apparent that it's not working, but purple prose is much more, I think people will be much more likely to 
be more subjective about that and to be like, well, how much is too much? And is, you know, and if I cut this one, is that reduce it enough so that it's not quite, you know, and then some people too, who can look at their writing and, and just not either be willing to acknowledge or able to understand what it is about the prose itself that is not, um, that is not as elegant or concise or clear as it could be. And so this is something too, where I think, you know, everybody always says that writers should read a lot and it's true. You should read a lot. The more you read, the better you'll be able to identify good prose, the better you'll be able to recognize it in your own work. Um, and I would also return to our trick of reading out loud mm -hmm. because reading out loud takes up much more time and causes you to really focus on what you're saying. And if you're running out of breath before you can reach the end of your sentence, or if you've been talking so long that you forget what you were talking about when you started, or, you know, if it just sounds like something that no one would say, because of course, you know, this is fiction and fiction does not need to be identical to real life. People say and do and feel things in fiction that they do not in real life for a variety of reasons. So I'm not saying that everybody needs to talk exactly the way that all the people in your actual life do speak, but it needs to be believable as something that a human being would say that we can read it and, and know that this character would say things in this particular way and have it be believable. So I think my advice would be to read as much as you can. And then when it comes to your own work, read it out loud. I, I second the reading out loud part because, and I think a lot of writers don't read out, out loud because they think what they read on the page is the same as hearing it heard. It is not. It's in a completely different dimension. And I noticed this because I listen to a, a lot more audiobooks now than I, than I ever did growing up. And also because I don't necessarily retain information via audio as well as I do if I've just read, if I read it. Um, but a book that I thought was really great and lush and interesting on the page can actually be the dullest audiobook. And the example I'm actually going to use is The Thirteenth Tale by Diane Sutterfield, which is a novel that I love. And I think this novel is wonderful and it's great. And it is really boring in audio. <laughs> it's it's very lush, though. It's very, when you're reading it, it's a very lush descriptions. It's very gothic. You know me. I love gothic anything. And it's kind of an inelegant way of telling the story a little bit. It's, it's very kind of like Wuthering Heights sort of way where someone goes and someone then tells their life story to you. And it's a little bit awkward. And so at, when you're listening to this, even though it's very lush writing and very descriptive in this it kind of weighs everything down. Um, so there is actually a huge difference between what you read on the page because when you read something on the page, at least I don't hear it. I don't know if people do when they read something on the page, if they hear it in their head, but I don't. I, I never learned to read via phonics, so I don't sound things out. I perceive things written, word, the written word differently. So... 
when you when I read something out loud, then I definitely notice when something is too purple or if it's a metaphor that simply makes no sense uh, that sounded great in my head and then when I actually read said said line out loud it's it was utterly ridiculous um, so that's kind of the purple part which we spent some time on but then let's just talk about anything else on a sentence level that you should get rid of that weighs a book down what else do you think should go on a sentence level, other stuff that weighs a book down. Do you have something specific in mind? Description, really. Physical description. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have your character stand in front of the mirror and describe to the reader what they look like. That does nothing. I mean, it can work for some people, I suppose. Like, I think, I think that specific descriptions are important. I think... You know, we want to know the race of the character most of the time. We want to know the gender of the character most of the time. These are things that are important to say. Don't just assume that, you know, you want to leave it ambiguous because, you know, whatever we've gone into before, why that's not great. And if you're unsure about why that's not great, you can do some research online. Um, so identify the race of your characters, please. And And some description is good, but... This repeated, you know, once we know a guy is hot, we know a guy is hot. We don't need to hear about how he's hot every single time the protagonist sees him. We don't need to know that he's hot because of his hair and his piercing eyes and his muscles and his skin and his smirky smile and his scent and his, like, we don't need to know. Once we get it, he's hot. We are able to retain that information and we don't need it presented to us every single time this dude shows up on screen or on the page. Yeah, there's physical descriptions of characters, although I do have, I guess depending on the sort of book, a higher tolerance for that. Um, I am actually rereading the Cushel's Dart books by Jacqueline Carey, which I'll, I'll talk about mm -hmm. a little bit later. Um, and a lot of this book is just, not just, because this book is actually pretty heavy on the political intrigue and lots of actual plot stuff happens but the main character is a courtesan and so there is a lot of description of what she's wearing what she looks like uh, a kind of unabashed reveling in beauty which i find charming and i think you know it's, it's obviously your mileage may vary on this kind of a thing because there's another book with a similar protagonist um the Shadow Fever is it Shadow Fever series I don't remember but the author is Karen Marie Moaning and the main character, Michaela, or Mac, constantly describes herself. And for some reason, you know, she's talking about what she's wearing. And because these books were published, I think, like, five, six years ago, they can be kind of dated. Because I think at one point she describes her, like, pink velour juicy pants. And I was like, oh, my God. It's like the <laughs> most dated thing I've read in my life. Um, so... And I don't find that charming I, in, in her narration. For some reason, I find it charming in Phaedra's narration in, in the Cushel Start series. But, you know, so your mileage does vary on these sorts of things. The other descriptions I think you need to scale back are descriptions of place. And descriptions of what the character is seeing. So an example that I will bring up nothing's particularly specific but you know a description about 
you know, trees on an autumn day and the spindly fingers of, you know, the spindly branches, you know, crawling across the sky like fingers or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. But this, like, just overlong description of what the weather's like. And you're like, but what's the point of this? Yeah, no. I was in the forest and the trees were bright. The end. Like, move on. Or just limit it to one sentence. Because, you know, the Mm -hmm. way you describe the sky you know, as being gray or flat or whatever, you know, this sort of pathetic fallacy, obviously, but it can contribute to the mood of the scene. Certainly, but you don't have to run on so long, you know, this pretty description or this interesting description of the world around the protagonist just weighs it down. You know, if you're going on for like two paragraphs, as, as in the Anne of Green Gables example about a sunset, you should probably cut that because no one's going to care how pretty a sunset is unless it contributes something meaningful to the emotional growth or whatever of the character or the plot or whatever. Um, and that's kind of the second thing that I can think of that you should cut. Even if you love that description, maybe think about maybe trimming it down to a sentence or two, I think. Um, I think also long descriptions of feelings can be cut. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily mean like, I don't actually, I think describing physical sensation you can do and that's fine. Physical sensation is, is fine, but like emotional stuff, you know, when you go on for paragraphs and paragraphs about how this character means so much to you and you would die for them or, you know, it's just kind of, if it goes on, you know, in basically this, the, the, when you have an extended scene where it's just talking about feelings, you're being told. The reader is being mm-hmm. told. The reader is not being shown that these characters have extreme depth of feeling for each other, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you have just paragraphs and paragraphs of, of your character telling the reader what they feel about somebody, maybe think about replacing that with actually showing it. And I don't necessarily mean like they do something for their character, but love and intimacy often come out in small little physical details that I think say a lot more than, you know, the warmth of my affection for her swept over me like a blanket or, you know, something like that. You can find, you know, I think maybe stroking someone's hair or, you know, fixing a tie or something like that, I think often shows the character that they care in an action, but you don't need to be told that. So that's kind of the other thing I would say, be on the look for and maybe get rid of. (laughs) So anything else on a sentence level we want to discuss? I think that's it for the most part. All right, so let's move on to our next segments. What have you been reading? Anything? Nothing. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. Nope, nope. I'm still reading, like, snatches of Miss Avalon before bed, but I'm talking, like, a page or two. I've been drinking um, my sleepy tea, the big chill from David's Tea. Not David, my husband, but David's Tea, the actual Canadian 
tea company. Um, and it pretty much knocks me right out. So I read, you know, maybe a page or two in that and then pass out. And I have not read a book in a long time. And you know what? I don't feel bad. It's not even a slump anymore. It's like my summer vacation from <laughs> reading. Yeah, I, I get that. You just want to take your brain off of, mm-hmm. you know, of working, basically. And I think also, too, I think, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in another bit, but I think because I'm trying to start writing more, I don't want other voices in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I fall into mimicry really easy, mm-hmm. especially, you know, so like, and all of a sudden my writing starts sounding like other people's writing. Um, so I think that now that I'm starting to seriously try to draft a little bit, I don't want to read a lot. So I don't think that's the sole reason for it, but I think that's part of it. I I would agree. I actually don't read a lot when I draft either. The only books I tend to read, aside from research, which is different when I'm drafting for a book, are the books that I call tone research. Mm. Like books that have a certain feel to them, essentially, that I want to evoke in whatever it is I'm working on as well. Um, and it doesn't have to have the same story. It doesn't have to have this, the same anything, really, but just evokes a feel in me that I want readers to have in the books that I'm writing. And so one, not, not book two, which I'll get to later, but one of the other projects that I had in my head that I was starting to write that I sort of tentatively called California Gothic, which is really kind of a contemporary work of creepy magical realism maybe <laughs> I actually read Bitter Blue by Kristen Kishore I was u- using that as tone research because that feeling of not knowing you know there there is a certain feeling or mood that Bitter Blue put me into that I read as tone research for this work of contemporary fiction that I was working on so it doesn't have to be the same genre or anything so I, I get that I, I don't really read a lot either but I only read very very consciously and specifically, and I don't often read anything new when I'm drafting. It's always going to be something that I'm already familiar with. So I mentioned before that I was reading, rereading the Kushel's Dart series, and I'm rereading those on audio. And partially because there is a little bit of a lushness to the series and that I also want to evoke, also because these are comfort reads for me, so I don't have to think so hard. Um, but I don't think I can actually recommend the audiobook. <laughs> I don't love the narrator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I want I just got the audiobook because I do want to reread it and I can't like physically read the book while I'm at my work, you know, at day job, so <laughs> I have to buy it in audio. And it's just, I really wanted to reread it. And so, therefore, the only way I can do it and get all the other things done is to have it on audio. And I, I don't love the narrator, and it's breaking my heart. because I, re- I, I, I get, It gets to the point where I'm like, I can do better than this. <laughs> I can read this better than the narrator. And that's a really sad thing to, to come across. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It, and she sounds old. That's the other thing. I hate that. And Phaedra is, well, she starts out as a child, and the series kind of mostly takes place when she's in her early to mid-20s, and then the last book sort of takes place in her early 30s. And the woman narrating doesn't sound 
super, super old, but she definitely sounds older than that. So, it's like cognitive dissonance there for me that I don't really like. But that's it. You know, I don't really have anything new. I'm like like Kelly because I'm working on something. I don't really have the space to read anything new at the moment. Mm-hmm. So then what are you working on? Yeah. My young adult novel, same, uh, same thing. I am trying to get serious about it. I um, serendipitously got a free month's rental of a writer's studio dropped into my lap. Um, for various reasons. I'm so and jealous. So I, I know I'm really jelly. I'm jealous too. It is, um, it's not a retreat or anything. It's local in Minneapolis. Um, but, uh, I got lucky enough to have that offered to me for a month and I am going to embrace that offer wholeheartedly. And I am going to really try to write and write and write this month. I am interested to see if I could finish a draft in a month. I know that's something that crazy people under contract do, and I know that that's something that some other writers who do not write the same way that I write do, but seeing as how I have never finished a draft of a novel in my life, and that I haven't had a solid writing habit in recent years that has lasted for a full month. It's an interesting challenge. I'm going to see what I can get done while working in this dedicated space. Um, so fingers crossed, everybody cheer me on. I have to get this draft finished. I have to, I have to do it. It's like cool runnings. I have to cross the finish line to know if I'm enough. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yeah, I'm hopefully going to be really, um, getting a lot of writing on the page in a, in a long time, in the next couple of weeks. All right. So yeah, I'm still waiting for chapter one. <laughs> I know I owe JJ chapter one. It's not finished yet. <laughs> I, I could send you what little I have, but soon, very soon. I think for you, you need to have a game plan if you want to finish in a month. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. But I think that we've already kind of discussed that, um, you know, I, I know the main beats and now that I have Scribner, I've been trying to, you know, drill down more and break that, you know, those larger beats into chapters and scenes and things like that. So I, I think it is doable. I have that skeleton. Um, I just need to really do it. And I think that I also, in, if I'm going to do it in a month, I need to like have milestones to hit each week, yeah. you know, I have to have written to a certain point. So, so if you have the major turning points, give that to me and then you can draw up a schedule. All right. <laughs> You're going to need oh. that discipline and you know, you're externally validated. So I know, I know. So if, you know, if you're going to use me to hold you accountable, then why not use me to hold you accountable? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. How is book two going? You know that scene in Star Wars where they are uh, trying to break out Princess Leia and Han is holding off the stormtroopers and they call in on the intercom, hey, what's going on there? <laughs> and he's just like, it, it's fine. Every, everything's fine. We're all, we're all fine here. How are you? Thanks for asking. 
that that's where I am with book two. <laughs> um, a part of it is because there's just a lot of other stuff going on, you know, outside in my in my life right now. Just nothing personal, really. It's just like stuff I had to catch up at work because of the week I took off. Uh, promotional stuff that I am being asked to do, and I don't mind doing it, being asked to do for a winter song that also eats up a lot of my free time that I don't have outside the day job. Um, it, and also just because, like, I just can't read winter song again, you guys. I've, uh-huh. I've reached saturation point with my first book, and I don't even hate it. I still like it. I just can't look at it. Uh-huh. <laughs> just like, oh, I don't want to... just too much. So all of that compounding, I don't really have a lot of it. it's free emotional space or bandwidth to really focus on book two like I need to. And I really need to because it's due in two months. Um, and I still kind of have no idea what it is. And I just because when I draft, I like to have these like long periods of time where I think about it. And just let it kind of percolate at the back of my mind. I just, because of all the other things that I've had to do, I haven't had that time to do it. I haven't even been able to journal. And that, for me, is a very crucial step in my drafting process as I journal about the book. And I just haven't had time to do that either. So I'm hoping once the craziness of this week of me catching up and the, you know, stuff I have to do at work and... Also, because I'm dog-sitting right now, that I'm just like, once all this passes, to just really kind of, like, tell my friends, I can't see you, I can't talk to you, I can't do anything right now, but just literally come home, shut the door, and work. I'm hoping that that will work for me. Like, literally, I'm going to have to cut out all social engagements as well, because I can't be social right now, Mm -hmm. so. That's my game plan, anyway, for the month of August. So, yeah. And uh, any off-menu recommendations? So, I got really into Firewatch, which is Mm. a video game that, uh, much like Life is Strange, is a narrative video game. And, you know, it's mostly just you having a conversation with another character and you get to choose your responses and you kind of choose your backstory and that's what drives the story forward. I think there's even less gameplay mechanics than there are in Life is Strange. You have to wander around a lot more and go to certain points, but once you're there, you don't have to do anything. There's no like yeah, oxen picking freeze things like up that. and oxen freeze a lot yeah. like that. So, I really really enjoyed the process of playing Firewatch and I despise the ending and apparently the end is the same no matter what you do oh (laughs) like it doesn't change it's not like in life is strange you get to the end and you're given a choice and you get to choose what happens this is not that the same thing always happens no matter what you get to choose like sort of the emotional note that you go out on like you get to the end and you realize the answers to all the strange things that have been happening because it's kind of like mystery a little bit creepy paranoia storytelling going on and so you find out the answers to all these mysterious questions and the answers are always the same no matter what happens and 
you get to have one final conversation with the other person in the game and you kind of get to choose like your emotional beat, I guess, for that last thing, but it doesn't have any consequence. It's not a, it's not like in life is strange where the emotional choice that you make has like a satisfactory ending. This is, you get the ending and then you get three responses that you get to say your last line. And it's like, choose what your last line is going to be. And that's it. And I really don't like the answers to the mysteries and the questions. I really, I, I was really, it really frustrated me. So it's tricky because I don't know that I recommend it because I hated the end so much. But while I was playing it, I really loved the act of playing it. So maybe play it until you get to like the very end and then just stop and just make up in your own head what happens. <laughs> That's my stomach growling. Wow, I don't know if the mic picked that up or not. <laughs> I think... That that kind of is a little disappointing about Firewatch because the thing that's great about Life is Strange is kind of the choose your own adventure aspect of it, right? Like go to page fifty-two mm-hmm. and you know, the choices you make in the choose your own adventure book have consequences the way they do in Life is Strange. And, you know, there are often times in a choose your own adventure book where you like die or, you know, whatever, like something happens and you know, so that's like a consequence of your decision. And that also happens in Life is Strange, so you know, I that's just a little bit disappointing that it's basically a singular story and that you're kind of along for the ride. And that's the, kind of disappointing, actually, to hear about Firewatch. Because I had heard very, very good things about it. Yeah, I don't know if it's just me or not. I, in a way, it was kind of like Lost, I think, where you're supposed to be like, it's the journey that's more important <laughs> than... Than the answers. And in a way it was, except I was playing my character in a very specific way. So you you play a park ranger and your only other human contact in the game is over a radio. And it's um, a woman named Delilah who is the lookout in the watchtower looking for fires and telling you where to go. And you establish this relationship with her purely through talking via walkie-talkie radio this whole time. And the relationship that you develop with this woman over the course of the game is the heartbeat of the game. The relationship is the main thing, and there's a couple of different ways that that can play out based on the choices that you make. But you're also given a bunch of choices at the beginning that help shape your backstory and why it is that you are working as a park ranger to begin with, because you're playing a, a man in his mid-40s. And so there's all this backstory about how you get there. And the choices that I made about my backstory informed the choices that I made in my game because I wanted to play a consistent character. Like when I play games like this, I make a choice about who my character is and then I Mm -hmm. try to play consistently, you know, with that worldview. And so it meant that the relationship that I developed with Delilah was more antagonistic than romantic, and romantic was certainly one way that you could go with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you formed a more romantic connection with her, it might be more satisfying, mm-hmm. but not, but not necessarily because the. I mean, I can't say any more than that without, um, 
without spoiling anything, it do, it truly doesn't matter. No matter what type of relationship you choose with her, the end of the game is the same. <laughs> so, so yeah. It, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. just, it was that's, not that's my favorite thing. Yeah, but like, it was really engaging to play, but I hate the end. <laughs> I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that Oxenfree has, has, consequences to the choices I'm making in, mm-hmm. in this game. So we shall see, but I have not played much more since I mm-hmm. discussed it last time cuz book 2. Um this is this this will be my dangling carrot. I finish book 2 and then I can finish this game. Um my off menu recommendations this week are so Mark and I started watching I think season 3 of BoJack Horseman. I think I mentioned BoJack Horseman before. It's a Netflix original series. It's a cartoon. It is surprisingly good. Like, initially, it's a pretty simplistic concept and idea. It's it's a world where there's anthropomorphic animals and humans. It's set in Hollywood. Um, and the main character is a horse who is a washed-up, jaded actor from the 90s who used to be the star of a sitcom called Horsin' Around. And it's now 20 years later, and, you know, it's him trying to, you know, either make a comeback or make sense of his life or meaning. And, you know, and it's funny. It's a very funny show. And it also goes into, like, really, really sometimes dark places, like, really dark dark places like just emotionally dark like i like imagine a point a person can get like the lowest point a person can get and go like even lower than that and i feel like there's a new point in every season where i thought this is the bottom bojack's hit the bottom and he goes even lower than that but then there are also points of it parts of it that are extremely poignant because he's this kind of just a misanthrope or well not just people he doesn't just like people he just doesn't like anyone you know he um very cynical and a large part of this story for him is that he's trying to find either redemption or meaning in his life and ultimately every single time he tries sometimes he just finds out that it's hollow like he wants this and then he gets that thing and then but that doesn't bring him any satisfaction or anything. So, like, a lot of his victories feel hollow. So, you know, it get, it can get very dark, but also really poignant. And um, it the third season is very, very good so far, and I do recommend it. Um, and also, we started Stranger Things, which <gasps> is another Netflix original. We're not that far into it. But I have all the nostalgia feelings about it. That's why I want to watch it. I've heard amazing things. And I loved, like, um, like Super 8. And yes, I, yes, yes. other things, like, in that wheelhouse, I feel like I love. Here's my question about Stranger Things. How much horror is there? Not that much, to be honest. Really? I like, can I handle it? Because <laughs> I want to watch it. but It's not... I mean, it's definitely creepy, but if you could handle Super 8, you can handle this. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not... I don't know what's, what scares you exactly. Like, what about what horror tropes bother you? Maybe that would give me a better idea of what to... I don't like body horror. I don't like jump scares. Mm. I don't like rape. 
I don't like bad things happening to kids. I mean, I don't like any of it, pretty much. <laughs> okay, well, there's not a lot of body horror. Okay. In yet, anyway. Um, I don't think there will be. It's. I think it's more supernatural than, like, horror, That's per se. That's okay. I can deal um, with that. Yeah, it's a little bit creepy. I will tell you right off the bat that the first episode, one of the kids goes missing. Okay. So, if you don't like bad things happening to kids, that's, like, the kind of the thing that happens right. first is one of the kids... Dis- something happens to one of the kids. Right. Um, but it's pretty great. Like, the kid, the actors are really great. It is so... Like, so pitch perfect in every way of all the movies that I loved and watched in the 80s and 90s. From the font, to the music, to the names of the characters. Like, Winona Ryder's in this, by the way. And she plays a character named Joyce. But there are other characters named, like, Barb. And, like, (laughs) it's so... And, like, the font choices, everything about it is so very nostalgic. And and it's it's really great. It's really wonderful. Um, really enjoying that one so far. And it's funny because, like, I talk about nostalgia. There is There are extended flashbacks in this season of BoJack where they go to 2007. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious, the things that they kind of point out about 2007. Like, one of the characters like, hang on, let me put on my denim jacket, short skirt, and Uggs. <laughs> <laughs> and it just makes me realize just how dated some things are that I think are fairly recent, but now I realize it's like 10 years ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but those are my two recommendations for this week. Excellent. That is all for this week. Next week, we'll, we'll, we will be continuing a series on writing and craft and where we were talking about streamlining this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about expanding things in your story and in your writing. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it really helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Instagram or Twitter, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. And just a reminder, our query critique submission call is still open, so go ahead and submit those um, to publishingcrawl at gmail.com with the title query critique in the subject. So, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.